If you buy caviar anywhere in the world, including the U.S., one out of ten tins of caviar in the world, top grade, is from our farm. So no matter whose name is on it, it's our farm. Good afternoon, and thank you for listening to Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. This is a 30-minute show dedicated to sharing an inside perspective of the Epicurean world here on Nantucket Island. You will hear from those voices who've helped create and represent this fascinating place. And lastly, we hope to educate on wine, healthy cooking, and the agricultural and sustainable community here on island. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Camille Broderick with Camille's Demi Hour. And for the show today, I thought it would be fun to bring in someone who is an expert in a special product that is usually consumed during celebratory moments. It is coveted around the world. It is international. It is delicious. It is rare. And it is something that you don't always get to have, but it's definitely worth splurging once in a while. And I thought for this weekend, you absolutely should. And this lovely product that I'm talking about is caviar. And today uh, we are speaking with the vice president of Calvisius Caviar, John Neerum. I actually went to a event at the Great Harbor Yacht Club and was fortunate enough to taste this caviar during the Nantucket Wine Festival. I was just floored. It was some of the best caviar in my memory. And I just knew that uh, this is something really special. And I reached out to the company for him to join us on the show today. So welcome, John. It's a pleasure to have you here talking about caviar. Oh, it's truly my pleasure. I know you can talk about caviar for a while. I know it because this is not just your job, but I believe it's your passion. Uh, why don't you talk to us about the history of caviar? I know it dates back centuries, but you've informed me it's older than uh, than I know. It actually is. Uh, the Egyptians actually started it. Uh, it was the poor man's food, um, and it was like that all the way up until the 1900s, believe it or not. Not just with the Egyptians, but I think the only other gourmet food that was noted uh, prior to that was probably truffles. Um, but the uh, caviar was taken for the uh, slaves, and the royalty ate the sturgeon meat, because the sturgeon meat is actually very delicious also. Where were the sturgeon coming from at that point? From the Caspian Sea? Um, actually, the sturgeon can grow on every single continent, um, short of Antarctica. Um, and basically what it is, it needs a big sea, big uh, body of water, and then a river to swim up um, to spawn. So the sturgeon all over Egypt would, would come from any of their large bodies of water and up the Nile, and then they were harvested there. Uh, and it was a big fish. So it was a lot of food. How old do they get, typically? The sturgeon, it's kind of funny, but it's actually uh, the sixth oldest species known to man. Um, it can uh, live to be 100 years old. Um, it was around before the dinosaurs. Um, it can go uh, 2,000 pounds and can be up to 20 foot long. So why did they eat the eggs? Well, uh, the whole inside of the fish would probably weigh close to, you know, on a 2,000-pound fish, it's 20% of the fish's weight. So 400 pounds worth of eggs, et cetera, on the females and they would use that for food for the uh, slaves and the workers. So then how did it evolve to become a delicacy over time? Um, I think because the um, 1800s caviar started to become more of a royalty type of uh, item for the czars in Russia. 
So it was one of those things that um, evolved from the poor man's food to the rich man's food, but it also went back in time, too. One of the coolest things I know is the the number one production place for caviar in the world was actually here in the U.S., and it actually uh, was between 1865 and 1905. You would go into a bar, and instead of a bowl of peanuts, you'd have caviar sitting on the bar for free, usually a 25% salt content, and then uh, three cents or five cents for the beer, uh, which meant you drank a lot of beer. But, it's like uh, in New York City when there was just oysters everywhere on the streets. <laughs> exactly. Of it was like lobsters or oysters. Um, it was definitely the, the working class and poor man's food, and it evolved um, to the early 1900s where it was just prized. And actually, a lot of the caviar that we harvested here in New York actually made it to France. Um, there was a small company back then called Petrosian, uh, who's one of the largest uh, caviar traders um, in the world currently, and they actually uh, were importing our caviar from the U.S. and then repackaging it and sending it back over here as Russian caviar, <laughs> believe it or not. Oh, that's what they do with white truffles in Italy that, that or is in a fact. Croatia. <laughs> uh, so why don't we talk about the difference between Russian caviar? Did the Russians just have a, a big population of sturgeon? Why, why did they become so known? Um, well, the, the Russians really were using it for their uh, working class and poor people. It's just, it was on uh, brown bread with a little bit of butter. Um, and it's usually like a 20 to 25% salt. So it was very salty, but it was, it was a staple for the working class. The U.S. started to run out of caviar, and by 1905, we had all but ex, uh, extinguished all the uh, caviar in our country, and that's when the Caspian Sea really took off because uh, France could get the uh, Russian caviar from, like, 1905 to uh, 1995. They were getting it out of the Caspian Sea. But the Caspian Sea is like our Gulf of Mexico. It's all oil refineries. And the rivers have all been dammed for hydroelectric. So we've taken away their spawning grounds, and we polluted the water. So the Caspian Sea is basically non-existent. When somebody says to me that they buy Russian caviar, and they really appreciate the difference between Russian and uh, regular caviar in the world, I always thank them very much, because we put five tons into Moscow last year. So the Russian caviar that's coming out of Russia right now uh, majority of it is most likely ours, or it's coming out of China. So why don't we talk about that issue in the market in the 90s? Because sturgeon was extinct technically, or certain species were in 1998. Was that part of the reason? Yeah. In 95, um, the UN realized that the populations of sturgeon all over the world were being completely uh, obliterated. So what they did is they started banning certain caviars. The first one that they banned was beluga. Um, and everybody wants beluga caviar. If you go online today, you can buy beluga caviar, but it's usually a Russian uh, beluga caviar, but it's really from China. It's not even a beluga caviar. It, beluga would have to be a huso huso, which is the Latin term for the species. Um, and this would actually be a hybrid out of China. Actually, the Kaluga, which is very similar to a Beluga with a large egg, etc., in China was banned in 2016 uh, because the fish in the river were only seven years old. But that fish takes 22 years before the females actually have eggs. So if you're harvesting all the meat before they're, you know, seven, it doesn't make any sense to keep on harvesting them because you're not giving them a chance to reproduce. 
Wow. And so, that's what happened in the Caspian Sea also. So to clarify, the beluga, cetra, saruga, caluga, the, the, what you just mentioned, those are all species of sturgeon, correct? With correct. Certain and they're all, they all have Latin names. And if you look on the bottom of our tins, we actually give you the Latin name because there's so much mislabeling in the U.S. and there's really no labeling laws. Um, currently, I can show you five different species that are all being sold as Ocetra. There's only one Ocetra, and that's a Guldenstadi sturgeon, and that would have originally come out of the Caspian Sea, out of, out of Russia. One of the biggest issues that we face in the U.S. is the, is the mislabeling of caviar. Um, an Ocetra takes, you know, 12 to 13 years to raise, whereas a Siberian takes seven years, and they're labeling Siberian as Ocetra. So they're, they're selling you a Ford Maserati. Not that there's anything wrong with the Ford, <laughs> but uh, you're driving the Ford, but you're paying for the Maserati. If you're just tuning in, you are hearing John Neerum, the vice president of Calvisius Caviar, on the air. He has been uh, explaining the differences of caviar and what is true caviar versus a lot of the uh, market that is, uh, I guess, f- faux or um, what would you define it? I think it's just misrepresented is the biggest issue you have. You have to buy from somebody reputable, and there are some very reputable companies out there, um, but we're actually the source for 25 tons worth of caviar. Uh, in the global market, uh, not counting the Chinese caviar, we're approximately 10 to 15% of the total volume of caviar in the world. Well, why don't we talk about Calvisius and the company itself? So you have a farming practice and you're raising sturgeon. Can you explain what that practice is about and what that actually means for a lot of people who think that farm-raised is could be not as fresh? Um, I think the biggest thing about Calvisius is it's completely sustainable. It's Friends of the Sea certified, which basically means the sturgeon are extremely well cared for. The coolest thing about being raised in Italy, because that's where our farm is. It's in between Venice and Milan by, in Brescia uh, in a small town called Calvisano. That's where Calvisius, actually, the name actually comes from, is actually the town uh, that's named after a Roman warrior. But the Friends of the Sea certified, it, it's so important that the animals are, are well cared for. The other thing that in Italy that really makes a big difference is there's no hormones, no antibiotics, and no pesticides allowed in the country. Uh, a lot of people want to buy organic, but we don't pay for the organic certification. But because it's coming out of Italy, there's automatically no pesticides, no hormones, no antibiotics. We have 150 acres worth of ponds. Um, it's a fresh-running aquifer, which means the water comes up out of the ground. It's used in the, in the uh, farm to... Re- raise the fish, and then it leaves the farm and it's used for agriculture. Now, the water coming into the farm has to be as clean as the water leaving the farm. So how do we do that without filtration systems? It's actually set up as a complete ecosystem. The sturgeon in our farms live anywhere from uh, 7 to 22 years if you're a female. Uh, Just like in life, the males don't live so long. Um, They only live till about four years. And that's because up until... 95, all the fish were being harvested at four years uh, for the meat. And the meat currently in Italy goes for almost $60 a pound. When you look at the cost of the meat, that's great. But then when you look at the cost of the caviar, that really took over in 95 when all the different species were being banned. One of the things that a lot of people ask me about is like uh, a cesarean section or a squeeze method. There are farms out there that do that. 
Um, but from what I understand, they have like a 30 to 40% mortality rate. Uh, we harvest the entire animal for the meat, etc. cetera. Um, nothing goes to waste. So what's so, this no-kill technique? What do they talk about and how do, they, how do you extract the eggs? Uh, it's, it's either a squeeze technique or it's a uh, cesarean section, so to speak. Okay. Um, but that's, that's not healthy for the fish. Mm-hmm. So you do it post the meat removal? Correct. So it's Correct. not just for the eggs. You're, you're harvesting the whole fish, like you said, in a sustainable way in the sense of using everything. Everybody thinks the Italians have really gotten the technique so perfect that a lot of the other farms in the world have actually used our techniques, and, and we've actually helped a lot of people to uh, reestablish. Are you one of the largest Italian producers? or the... no, we're, one of the, we're, we're the largest farm in the world. Farm-raised. Are there, farm so raised. What are the percentages of farm-raised sturgeon companies in the world versus wild? There are no wild. There are no more wild. There's black market wild, mm-hmm. um, and anybody that buys that, I really feel sorry for you because I think, you know, morally it's just the wrong thing to do. So the farm is in Brescia in Italy. It's about, what, what is that, a two-hour drive from Turin, east of Turin or something? It, it's in the actually north? right between Venice and Milan. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's about two hours from Turin. Um, right between Venice and Milan, it's about an hour south uh, east of uh, Verona. Um, it's in Brescia, and it's it's actually the small town of Calvisano. And so what was their history? Did they start farming fish before they started farming sturgeon, other fish, before they started <laughs> they farming sturgeon? They actually started farming eel for a year. Wow. And uh, the eel, eel market fell apart, and the farm was literally, they were deciding whether to keep it open or what to do, whether to switch it over to a different fish, um, and then somebody at the University of California, Davies, actually got very smart and said, they've got these beautiful farms, they've got pristine water, and we have fish out of the Columbia River, which is a white sturgeon. We call it tradition because it's our oldest fish that we've ever had. Um, and that, that fish, they sent six fish from the Columbia River to Calvisano, Italy, to put in our farm. So we started to uh, raise that species just to repopulate the Columbia River, and today they actually you can actually catch fish. You can actually collect, uh, catch sturgeon out of the Columbia River. So those six fish came over, and we realized that there was a good market for the meat because those fish, after four years, were 280 pounds. Hmm. That was a big fish. The other thing that most people don't know is sturgeon are vegetarians. Hmm. So they all they eat is algae off of rocks. So that brings me to another point, to the health factor of eating caviar. So they're just consuming all this beautiful, good... Algae. <laughs> good, good yeah, earthy yeah. food. It's funny, because I actually I, I saw the actual food that they use, and it looks, like, it looks like a dog food or a kibble, but it's actually corn and alfalfa, um, and it's a blend. And what they do is they throw the kibble into the river, uh, into the pond, and the fish swim the other way. And I'm like... Don't they eat it? And they said, well, they will in about a week or two once the algae bloom takes over. So once you put the, pro- the uh, corn and alfalfa in there, you get the algae bloom, then the fish come and clean the rocks, and that's what they eat. So I've learned that caviar is rich in B12, selenium, a lot of great vitamins and nutrients. Uh, it has the health benefits, they say, of Prozac for depression and <laughs> Viagra for we all know what. And so do you talk about that? Is that known more than, uh, I mean, everyone no, you know knows what? there's omega-3s. I don't and... go into that 
depth unless people really are curious. It's more the the buzzword that I use is omega-3s because mm-hmm. it's a healthy oil for you. So anybody that's looking to eat more omega-3s, that's really very, very important. Um, as far as being um, a sensual food, it's it absolutely is. You know, uh, one of the things on my topic is to tell people to try caviar off their hand. Don't eat it off a spoon, whether it be mother of pearl, which is probably the best way to eat it. You never use metal. But if you put it on your hand, I put it on um, the back of your hand on your knuckle, mm-hmm. you'll get such a different flavor profile and such a, a, a great uh, sensual food presence that you'll truly enjoy it. Uh, the spoon, believe it or not, will tell your brain will tell you that it has a texture and a flavor profile before it ever hits your mouth. Mm-hmm. If you taste it off the back of your hand, your brain automatically says there's no taste on the back of your hand. So there's nothing uh, preemptive in your brain to give you a different flavor profile or texture. If you're just tuning in and you're wondering what this gentleman is talking about, uh, we are talking about <laughs> caviar and how to eat it on your hand in order to avoid any of the taint from uh, a spoon, a silver or metal spoon. And we are speaking with John Neerum, the vice president of Calvisius Caviar out of Italy. And I do confess that I had never heard of this brand before. I've heard of Protrusion and Brown Trading. And uh, how are you breaking into the market? If, is this a, a new brand? Am, am I missing something? <laughs> yeah, you, you're absolutely missing something, and <laughs> yes. so is everybody else. If you buy caviar anywhere in the world, including the U.S., one out of ten tins of caviar in the world, top grade, is from our farm. So no matter whose name is on it, it's our farm. Six years ago, actually probably seven years ago now, um, Calvisius decided to break into the U.S. market and sell their own brand instead of only selling to the traders who buy in bulk and then repack under their names. So what year was this? Uh, That was about seven years ago, so probably 2010, Okay, so they were supplying these other guys as well. We still do. Okay. We still do. We we supply quite a few people, but we only supply the people that are reputable, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Um, There's been instances where we've said, nope, sorry, we're not selling to you. Mm -hmm. And they're still upset that we won't sell to them. (laughs) We, We insist that we need to get the regular people to really understand caviar again. You know, if you go back to the 70s and 80s, There was such great caviar, but it was all wild, but it was all from Russia or Iran. Um, And the Iranian caviar was probably some of the best. I sold quite a bit of it back then as a retailer, and I loved it back then. So you have a great background. You're obviously extremely knowledgeable in caviar, but your background has always been in food. You've worked from Whole Foods to D'Artagnan, which is also an incredible gourmet fine food purveyor. How did you end up working with Calvisius? How did this happen? I'm sure a lot of people would love love your job. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's, it's a terrible job, but somebody has to do it. Uh, just <laughs> well, taste it caviar every day and go around selling caviar. Well, the best thing it was, um, it wasn't in your family. I mean, you really earned this this role. This is something that you worked your way up the ladder to get this position to taste caviar all day. Yeah, I, I was actually um, a, a supermarket manager, but I went to school for computers, graduated, hated computers, and went back into the food business. But uh, I was supermarket manager, and my son was about 14 at the time, and I wanted to get out of the 70-hour-a-week uh, job and try to get down into the 40- to 50-hour-a-week job. So uh, I left uh, Whole Foods and went to uh, D'Artagnan. 
and I started working for them. I worked for them for eight years. Uh, I was their Northeast Regional Sales Manager. Um, I had a blast. I was just selling all game meats, mushrooms, truffles, and caviar. Mm. Um, I didn't sell much caviar, but a little bit here and there. Um, I sold more in the supermarkets, believe it or not, in the 70s and 80s. But then uh, I had a headhunter come chasing me. And uh, the fourth time, I just told her, I'm not interested in a job in the caviar field. I'm not going to jail, and I'm not going to end up in the East River for anybody. You know, it just doesn't make any sense <laughs> for me. to. I have a great job. Uh, I'm not going to leave. Uh, Calvisius, um, they wouldn't give me the name, so finally she said she's going to have somebody give me a call. And actually, it was the CEO from uh, Italy called me, and uh, that was on a Thursday. Tuesday, he came and interviewed me, um, and I was working for them two weeks later. Um, but Calvisius has been very ago? good to me. Um, it's one of the few companies out there. Uh, no no uh, uh, illegal activities, um, very reputable. Um, so six years ago, they were looking for seven years ago. They're looking to grow. Um, and literally five years ago, they, they hired me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been working with them ever since. Well, congratulations. And, uh, That's a It's a fun job. And you're sharing the message uh, that people can eat it. You don't have to be part of the uber rich is what you said. And it's something of a treat and a delicacy that you can splurge on and, and at home. Uh, do you want to talk about the future of eating caviar before we have to go? I, I think the biggest thing I can tell you is caviar is not really the rich man's food and it's not the poor man's food, but it's somebody who wants to celebrate life. And it, whether it's a birthday an anniversary, anything like that, a wedding. Uh, it's a perfect food. Uh, if you have parents you don't know what to get for, caviar is one of the best presents out there. <laughs> if you're looking to expose somebody to a great food, if they love sushi, they're going to love great caviar. One of the best things I love is our caviar is so good, you don't have to eat it with anything. It's perfect just plain. It so. was. When I first tried it, I, I didn't need anything. I didn't need the brioche. I didn't need anything else. And it was. I did try it off my hand. And I don't know, maybe it's the magic of trying it <laughs> off of your hand. But that was uh, it was quite delicious. But if you were to have it, I mean, some people used to just have it on baked potato and um, really basic, simple things. Would you just have it on toast and call it a day? Uh, believe it or not, me, me and my wife will have a glass of champagne and we'll eat it off our hand. That's our favorite. <laughs> um, but I like it on potato chips. Yeah. I like it uh, with a slice of avocado. I like it as simple as possible. The only thing I want to tell you is uh, Nantucket. I started with three years ago at Crew Restaurant. Um, they're fantastic people, and they have grown exponentially every single year. Um, the island's Nantucket is absolutely a great location for caviar, um, and I'm starting to really get some penetration, so you're going to see my caviar brands in many, many places. So So good. We'll be able to taste it firsthand um, tomorrow, today, yesterday. (laughs) Sounds like a plan. (laughs) I can't wait to get back up there. Well, great. We'd love to have you back. And, John, it's been a total pleasure. I could talk so much. It's probably one of the fastest shows I've ever done, just to let you know. (laughs) I don't know if it was just the great topic or your fascinating knowledge. So thanks for being uh, a part of the show today. We really appreciate you coming and sharing. So thank you and absolutely cheers to your next champagne and caviar. All right. Thank you, John. You have a great day. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Camille's Demi Hour on Nantucket's NPR station. Tune in next weekend, Saturday and Sunday at 1.30 p.m. Cheers. And I would like to thank my sponsor, Nantucket Culinary. Food is love. Food is learning. Food is fun. 
Welcome to Nantucket Culinary, a home for sharing, celebrating, and conserving the island's unique heritage. Events, dinners, and classes. Come join us downtown at 22 Federal Street on the corner of Broad and Federal. Come on! 